Psalm chapter 1. Every once in a while, I like to come back to the book of Psalms. It's probably my favorite book in the entire Old Testament. And there's uh, so many good things there we need to know about. It's something we should return to often. And I don't have time to do a huge series on Psalm, but uh, what I do want to do is just give you an introduction to the book of Psalms, which is often called the Psalter. And Psalm 1 has is, is often been described as the gateway into the Psalter. And one of the things we're going to see here in... By the way, is this on? We all on? One of the things we're going to see in Psalm 1 is that there, in, in life there's only two paths. There's only two paths. It's really not that complicated. There's two roads. There's uh, what some have described as a highway and a low way. Every person's life, and by the way, ultimately, uh, their destiny is marked by the choice that we make regarding the way that we choose to go. Your destiny is determined by that. So each of us must choose wisely then, right? If if your eternal destiny revolves around that, you need to choose wisely. So some of us have said that decisions determine destinies. And that's one of the things we see here. So the road you choose is going to mark the course of your life. By the way, that is, that is not only for your present life here on earth, but it is also for eternity. And so Psalm 1 shows the difference between these two paths of life. So we're, we're, so we're going to see a contrast here in Psalm 1. one. One road, of course, is going to lead to blessing, whereas the other road leads to cursing. One road leads to salvation, the other leads to destruction. And so we need to take note here that there's only two roads in life. There's not multiple roads, but just two. And so we're going to contrast here in Psalm 1 the way of the godly and the way of the ungodly. And where do these two roads lead? So I'm asking the question to you today, which way are you going? So take this personally, look at the scripture here in Psalm 1, and ask this question, which way am I going? Which way are you going? So look at Psalm 1, Psalm chapter 1, let's read the entire chapter together. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. But his delight is in the law of the Lord, and on his law he meditates day and night. He is like a tree planted by streams of water that yields its fruit in its season, and its leaf does not wither. In all that he does, he prospers. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. Therefore, the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. For the Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. So, we're going to contrast from Scripture here, from Psalm 1, these two ways. Let's look at, number one, the way of the godly. The way of the godly. What do we see about the way of the godly here in verse 1? First of all, we see that they are happy in the Lord. Now, in the Lord's kind of key here. 
They are happy in the Lord. And you say, where are you getting that from? It doesn't say happy there. Well, uh, let's just look at the first word, Psalm chapter 1, verse 1. It says, blessed is this person. Blessedness has the idea of being happy. Look what, what one commentator wrote here. I quote, This psalm begins with the emphatic declaration that God's abundant favor will rest on the person who lives a truly God-centered life. In the original Hebrew language, the word blessed is repeated. This is the Hebrew method of indicating the plural, intensifying its meaning. Thus the phrase should read, Oh, how very happy! Or, the happinesses, or, oh, the blessednesses, end quote. So, you could have two words side by side there in verse 1. Blessed, blessed, and that's the Hebrew way of emphatically declaring a glorious truth. The New Testament equivalent, Jesus would often say, truly, truly. You know, it's just that that's what the Hebrews would do to emphasize something. You repeat it. So this word means an overflowing joy. It is a full contentment. Now, where is this happiness found? Where is it found? Look at the text. Blessed is the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked, nor stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers, but where is the, where's the delight? Your, your, your delight is in the law of the Lord, and on His law He meditates day and night. So where is this happiness found? Well, in reality, the, your soul is only going to be satisfied in the Lord. And this is the gateway into the Psalms, so let me just show you two Psalms that show your happiness, your blessedness is only found in Him. Look at Psalm 16, verse 11 here. It's on the screen. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 21, verse 6. For you make Him most blessed forever. You make Him glad with the joy of your presence. So where is happiness found? It's, it's not in your possessions. It's, it's not in you. It's not in this world. It's not in a, a person, unless that person is Jesus Christ. Number two. We're looking at the way of the godly. We see here, number two, that they are separated from the world. Godly people are separated from the world. Now, that doesn't mean extreme stuff here, Okay. It doesn't mean you, you, you go and live on the moon or a different planet. That's not what it's talking about here. But look at, it, it says there in verse 1, Blesses the man who walks not in the counsel of the wicked. Nor, notice it says, stands in the way of sinners, nor sits in the seat of scoffers. So we see several different uh, practices going on here. And so we see what the godly person doesn't practice is number one, the godly refuse secular philosophies and humanistic values. Secular is the idea of this, this world's philosophies. The humanistic values are, well, it's, it's, it's all around us, isn't it? We, we see it in things like, like evolution or you just, you know, do, you know, follow your heart's desires. It's just, it's everywhere. 
It's normal. And so if you want to be godly, it means you're, you're not going to walk in the counsel of these wicked people. It means you're going to refuse the worldly philosophies. You're going to refuse these humanistic values of the ungodly. You're going to refuse their worldviews, that they're constantly trying to conform you to their worldview. Their worldview is that man is the center of the universe. They're the, what is most important. You've got to live for yourself, follow your heart. So you're going to have a different standard of morality. You're going to have a, a, a different pursuit of even in your own pleasures if, you do, if you're following the godly way instead of the ungodly way. You're going to stick out. You're, you will be different. So they're separated from the world and secular philosophies and humanistic values. Number two, the godly refuse sensual behavior. The godly refuse sensual behavior. There's a progression here in verse 1. It starts with walking, then it goes to standing, and and then it ends up you're actually sitting in the seat of scoffers. The godly refuse sensual behavior. A righteous person is not willing to stand in the way of sinners. You don't want to be associated with these kind of people. Godly people resist the, the lure of the crowd to, to participate in their carnal activities and their sensual living. For example, Christians shouldn't be at Hood Street at 2 o'clock in the morning. That's not a place for godly people to be. I mean, that's kind of an extreme example, but godly people shouldn't also go to uh, other places as well and be in those kind of activities and sensual living that goes with that. <clears throat> Number three, the godly refuse to associate with those who scoff at God. It says right there in verse one, hey, you're not willing to sit in the seat of scoffers. Scoffers are people who mock God. They're the ones who say, there is no God. I can do whatever I want. Godly person doesn't sit in the seat of mockers or scoffers. They, they avoid these close relationships with people who blaspheme God and these, these, these atheists, particularly the new atheists, who are much more vocal than the old ones. We've got to be very careful here because 1 Corinthians Chapter 15, verse 33 says that bad company is going to corrupt good character. It will affect you. So those are some negative aspects. Let's look at some positive ones here. So a godly person is not going to do those sort of things. But what what does a godly person do? What's it like to be in the godly way? Well, we see here number three, they're, they're saturated with God's word. Godly person is saturated with God's word. Look at verse 2. You have a delight. We all have delights, but where is your delight? It's in the law of the Lord. And on God's law, a godly person is going to meditate all of the time. So we see here the the godly delight in the Bible. That's what the law of the Lord is referring to here. Godly delight in the Bible. And notice that it's not sinful to have delights here. Okay? Jesus often talks about that. It's okay to have delights. It's just, what is your delight in? 
So the question is, what is your delight in? Well, our delight ought to be in the Bible. Why should we delight in the Bible? Because that's where you get to know God. That's where God is reve- God's revealing himself through this book. And so the person who knows genuine joy is going to read and going to desire God's word. Let me ask you, my friend, do you truly desire to read the Bible every day of your life? Of course you're going to fail. Everybody fails in that regard. But do you desire to read the Bible every day? Or is it, is, is it you know, like one of those things like going to the dentist and getting a tooth pulled? Is that how you feel about it? Nobody likes getting teeth pulled out of their mouth, right? Hopefully you don't feel the same way about God's Word. And so if you don't, then you've got some serious heart issues then to deal with. You have a cold, dead, lifeless heart that needs to be revived and set on fire. And so you need to earnestly pray for that, for God to break your cold, dead heart, if that's the case. A hungry appetite for God's truth is actually going to lead you to the next point we see here is that, number two, that the godly meditate upon the Bible. So if you're saturated in the Bible, then you know what's naturally going to happen? Is you're going to meditate and think about the Bible throughout the whole day. Because verse 2 says it's on his law, this godly person meditates day and night. So if we want to be godly, we've got to constantly set our minds on the truths of the Bible. And by the way, did you notice when this meditation takes place? The Bible says it's day and night. The idea there, that's just a Hebrew way of saying it's, it's all the time. Right? When you're awake. And if you saturate yourself enough with it, you'll even dream about the Bible. But why should we do this? Why do we do this? Because focusing on Scripture is revealing the glory of God to us. Charles Spurgeon said it this way in his book, The Treasury of David, I quote, He is not under the law as a curse and condemnation, but he is in it, and he delights to be in it as his rule of life. He delights, moreover, to meditate in it, to read it by day and think upon it by night. He takes a text and carries it with him all day long, and in the night watches. When sleep forsakes his eyelids, he muses upon the word of God. In the day of his prosperity, he sings psalms out of the word of God. And in the night of his affliction, he comforts himself with promises out of the same book. End quote. That's what a godly person does. They meditate upon the Bible. It doesn't matter whether the circumstances are good or bad. We can find great comfort and help no matter what season of life we're in. Number three, we see the godly dig into the Bible. Hopefully you're not just satisfied with, with a surface understanding of the Bible or just satisfied with somebody telling you what the Bible says. Hopefully you want to dig yourself. That's where the Bible says we ought to study the Word of God. Verse 3 says, you, you should be like a tree that is planted by streams of water that's yielding its fruit in a season and its leaf does not wither. 
By the way, notice this is not some, just some wild tree. This is a tree that's been planted. This is a tree that's had some care taken. And that's what God does with us. He, he cares for us. He, he plants us, puts us in, in a healthy place to be, where we have the nourishment needed to bear fruit. This is a tree that's been planted by God. That's the way every Christian is. We are, we are like trees planted. But number four, the godly draw from the Bible. The godly draw from the Bible. Okay, God's looking after us. He's given us everything we need so we would be healthy and fruit yielding. But this is a tree that's been planted in a place that has water. And as a result of this, there's fruit that's bearing in its season. And notice the leaf is not withering away and dying. The, free, the, the, the leaf is healthy as well. And as a result of that, and all he does, he prospers. So a person who's delighting in God's instruction is going to be like a tree. Just think about a tree. tree just puts its roots in the ground <laughs> and it spreads its leaves out to, to get the, the nourishment and the photosynthesis process from the sun. It draws its life uh, sustaining nourishment from water that's in the ground uh, uh, flowing by its roots and sucks that up into its system. Well, the God-centered life is drawing its spiritual vitality from God's Word. Notice it's compared to many streams here. Streams is plural in my Bible. I hope it is in yours. And so this word streams here, you notice because it's plural, it's representing this abundance. It's not just some little trickle. It's, it's more than that's needed. It's over. It's an overflowing supply of strength and God-sustaining grace in our lives. So the godly, what are are we to do? We're to set down deep roots into a reservoir that's never, never, never going to run dry. Never. The godly needs to do that. And why why should we do that? Because we need refreshment. We need to be revived on a regular basis. We need to be renewed and cleansed. If we do, we'll be satisfied. Why did the godly do this? Why did the godly do this? Because they, the godly person knows that God's word can actually sustain. It can sustain. I want you to look at four results that the Bible has on the godly here. Four results that the Bible has on the godly. Number one, God's word brings stability. God's word brings stability. In verse 3, you're going to be like this strong tree that is a healthy tree, deep roots, all the nourishment it needs, no withering leaves, bearing fruit, securely planted with, with plenty of water, multiple streams around it, always going to have plenty of water, no droughts. Number two, God's word brings productivity. It brings productivity because this tree is bearing fruit. In verse 3, it says, you're going to yield its fruit in its season. The idea is there's a continual fruitfulness going on in every season of life, whether it's good times or bad times. 
And number three, God's word brings a constancy, something that's continual here. It means that all the godly person does is going to have eternal value and lasting results. And number four, that God's word brings prosperity. Now, hold on, this is not a prosperity gospel here. That's not the point. A lot of times what God talks about is spiritual, not physical prosperity. And so God's word is is so powerful here that whatever the godly person does is going to prosper. Godly people enjoy a spiritually enriched life. Well, that's the godly way, but we also see the ungodly way mentioned in Psalm chapter 1 here. So let's quickly talk about that, all right? Again, ask yourself, which way am I going? The reality is you could be on one path at one day in your life, and the next day in your life you could find yourself on the next path, a different path. And of course, if, if you're on this ungodly way, you need to repent. You need to change your way and get on the godly way. So, <clears throat> what does God say about these ungodly people? Are the ungodly blessed here? No. Are they happy? No. Are they successful? No. Are they fruitful? No. They may look successful on the outside, but they're not. The ungodly actually do what God forbids here in verse 1. God forbids that we do this. They walk in the counsel of the wicked. They're standing in the way of sinners in verse 1. They are seated in the seat of these, these mockers, these scoffers. And therefore, unlike the, the righteous who are, who are like the tree, they're, verse 3, planted by multiple streams of water. The, these ungodly are like chaff, like light rubbish that the wind just blows away. Let's talk about them. First of all, we see here the ungodly are actually corrupted internally. They're internally corrupted, which is their, their problem, isn't it? It's not an external issue. Right. Jesus says it's, it's what, what comes out of your mouth comes from inside you. What you do comes from inside you. So they're corrupted internally. Look at verse 4. The wicked are not so, but are like chaff that the wind drives away. So first thing we see here is they're, they're just useless. They're useless. They're, they're like chaff. This is agricultural imagery. Okay, Picture some, some Hebrew standing on a hill... On, on his property there in Israel somewhere. It's grain harvest time. Okay, Picture him getting out there and all the, the grain has been bundled up. You've got these long stalks of grain they've cut off at the ground and, and bringing it to the threshing floor, which would usually be on some hill. And imagine some guy you know, taking his, his donkeys or his mules and having some heavy machinery crush this so that the grain would be separated from the stalks, from the chaff. And imagine the, uh, after the donkey or mule's done his work, imagine him getting out his pitchfork and throwing this stuff in the air. Why would, he, why would they throw it in the air? Because verse 4 says, chaff is blown away by the wind. And the wind would take away the light, whereas the heavy grain would fall back down to the, flesh, the threshing floor. That's what would happen in Israel. And, and as a result of that, then they would be able to gather up the grain, and then they would have their food to eat. 
So that, that chaff was the part that the people couldn't eat. It was like, it was like a, a, a straw. It was just, yuck. And so by throwing it up in the air and having the wind blow that part away, then, then they would leave the part they could actually eat. And so the, the, the chaff was worthless to humans. And in the process, they would, they would eventually gather that up and then burn it. So it was useless. Number two, the ungodly are unstable. They're unstable. Like chaff. Chaff is unstable. And so this imagery here is used to describe the ungodly and these, these wicked who are, they're empty. They're, they're void. They're futile. They're, un, un, they're just shallow and worthless. Chaff is hollow, by the way. <laughs> It was only used to, to, to give the life to the grain, to support the grain, to keep it off the ground. And verse 5 gives us uh, several results here. Verse 5 says that, that the wicked will not stand in the judgment. They're not going to stand in the judgment, verse 5 says there. The idea is they're, they're, they're not going to have God's acceptance when they stand before Him on, on judgment day. God's not going to accept them the way they are. They're going to be exposed for what they really are, the Bible says, because God knows everything, and He says the books will be open, and they're going to be justly condemned in their sin. They're going to be sentenced to eternal punishment in the lake of fire. That's a pretty bold statement to make, so let's back that up with Scripture. Revelation chapter 20, look what it says here. It's on the screen. It says, verse 11, Then I saw a great white throne, and Him who was seated on it... From his presence, earth and sky fled away, and no place was found for them. And I saw the dead, great and small, standing before the throne, and books were opened. Then another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged by what was written in the books, according to what they had done. And the sea gave up the dead who were in it. Death and Hades gave up the dead who were in them. And they were judged, each one of them, according to what they had done. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. And if anyone's name was not found written in the book of life, he was thrown into the lake of fire. That's the final place, and it's not a resting place, but it is the final destiny of all those who reject Jesus Christ. They're not going to stand in the judgment, it says in verse 5. And number 2, they're not... They will not stand with the righteous either. Again, look at verse 5. The the wicked will not stand in the judgment, nor sinners in the congregation of the righteous. So these corrupt sinners, they're not going to be allowed to remain with righteous, godly people. They're going to be excluded from this joyful fellowship with God's saints. They're going to be revealed for who they are. They might might come across the sheep, but they're going to be goats. They're going to be removed from the presence of the godly forever. Again, that's what we see in Revelation 21, verse 8. Here on the screen it says, As for the cowardly, the faithless, the detestable, as for murderers, the sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Verse 15. Verse 15 says, Outside, 
outside of heaven, that is, are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. Well, that's summarized the two ways of life for us here. So let's uh, now look at the way of the righteous and the way of the wicked summarized here in verse 6 for us. So we see that the ungodly are damned eternally. The ungodly are damned eternally. In verse 6 it says, The Lord knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. The righteous are going to prosper, God says. One commentator said this about this verse. He says, I quote, it's on the screen. It means far more than that he is informed about their ways. Rather, God has a personal, intimate relationship with the godly and is involved with them in order to guard, guide, and grace them. End quote. This is an intimate knowledge, in other words. The Lord knows the way of the righteous. He knows everything about the way of the righteous. But what does it say about the wicked in verse 6? The way of the wicked will perish. Well, hard to comment on such a horrible phrase in our Bible. But we must believe it because God says it. This truth ought to grip our hearts. I mean, you think about that. The word, just look at the word perish, for example, in verse 6. It, it means to die. It means to undergo destruction. These ungodly people are going to be utterly dead and destroyed. Now, that doesn't mean they're going to be annihilated. Okay, this is not... That's not what God is saying here. There are some people who believe when, when you die, you, you'll be annihilated. There's just no more existence. That's not what God is saying. This word was used of destruction after death, but nowhere in the Bible is it ever used to talk about complete annihilation. It, it spoke of an unending, eternal destruction of the wicked that would never cease. What I'm trying to say is this, that the wicked are going to suffer relentless torment here in a real place. This is not someone's imagination. This is a place that God made originally for for Satan and the demons. But anyone else who rejects Jesus Christ will live forever in this place as well. So the Bible says that hell is real. Jesus believed in hell. That's why he talked so much about it. And the Bible says... As we read in in Revelation, God's going to cast these ungodly people into the lake of fire. And that's where the wicked will always be. It will not be comfortable. And they will be forever suffering the eternal wrath of God. And they're never going to find relief from God's just vengeance. Why is that? Because that's what all of us deserve. We all deserve this. And so that leads me to another point I want to make here is that since we all deserve eternal death in the lake of fire, what does that say for those of us who are believers in Jesus Christ? Well, you can thank God for His grace because none of us want what we deserve. None of us want what we deserve. And so what we have to do is we we plead for grace. And you say, well, what is grace? Well, grace is God's unmerited favor. 
It's God's unmerited favor. You do nothing to merit it, and you do nothing to favor God, God blessing you in any way. So grace is receiving what we don't deserve. None of us deserve the greatest gift, which of course is God's Son, Jesus Christ, which I'll remind you, He's the one who became a substitute and died in the place of sinners. He's the one who is, is that of substitute who absorbed God's wrath. He paid the penalty for your greatest problem, which is your sin. And so if you're, my friend, if you are not a Christian, if you're a non-Christian, listen, listen. You're a sinner. You were born a sinner. And according to John 3.18, Unless your path is altered, you are already on the ungodly way. The Bible says you are condemned already unless you believe in Jesus Christ. And by believe, it means in John 3 there, you're totally relying upon Jesus and Him alone for your salvation. Nothing else. Okay? So you're a sinner in need of a Savior, and Jesus is the only Savior Strong enough and worthy to, to deal with your greatest problem, your sin problem. So you have to trust in Jesus in order to avoid perishing in this place that Revelation calls the lake of fire. And so if you're a Christian then, you, what do we do as Christians? Some Christians think, hey, I'm, I'm saved by grace, but I'm just going to live my life without God's grace. It doesn't work that way. No. You live... In that same grace you're saved by. Right? Jesus gets you to heaven, and he's the one who enables you to live the Christian life as well. So, he, well, here's the way he said it. Without him, you can do nothing. Without Jesus, you can do nothing. So, my friend, which way are you going? Which way are you going? Presently. I'm not saying, you know, for the last how many years of your life. What are you doing now? Look at yourself. Okay? I can't see your heart. God can. I can't. You might have everyone around you fooled. But you don't have God fooled. So which way are you going? Every person needs to ask this very soul-searching question. You need to ask God to reveal the, the answer to, to you. <clears throat> so, let me ask you another question. <clears throat> I actually got a couple questions here. I don't know if I put them up here. Have I entered through the narrow gate that, that is leading to this path of the godly? Have I? Have you? Jesus, in his Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5-7, through 7, he called it the narrow path that leads to eternal life. There's a broad way that leads to destruction. Many are finding that path. That's the natural path. Am I traveling this wide road that's headed to destruction? Which one are you on? And so if you've made a profession of faith, then i just got a few questions that will really help you to understand. Was my profession of faith genuine? Was it genuine? All right? There, I put them up there for you. Number one, is there clear evidence of a transformed life that, a, that is actually authenticating this claim, this profession? Clear evidence. Okay? Number two, are you experiencing the blessedness of God's favor? Because verse one says, blessed is this man. Happy is this man. This, this man is multiply blessed 
abundantly blessed. So are you? Are you living a separated life distinct from the beliefs and behaviors of the ungodly? These are just questions that are right, just drawing from the text. Or do you love to be with the ungodly? You listen to their advice. You want to be with them and go to their parties. You want to work with them. That'll help answer that question. Have you made the break from the world? Or do you love the world? Is your delight in the law of the Lord? So these are just a few things we see in the text here that'll really help us to know, hey, is is this authentic faith? Have I really made a profession of faith in Jesus? Or have I fooled myself? Well, the answer to those questions is going to reveal which path you're really on. And many people today uh, will point to some mystical feeling or some emotional experience, and, and they try to use that to validate whether or not they've really been converted, if they're really a Christian. Well, guess what? Mystical feelings and emotional experiences can let you down. They can be deceiving. All right? So what do you have to do? You've got to look for the fruit of, ch- of a changed life. Jesus calls us to be fruit inspectors. So you look at a tree, and you can, you can tell a tree is, uh, you know, a lot about a tree by looking at the fruit. What's, what's going on on this tree? If the leaves are withering up, for example, there's a problem, right? If it's not bearing fruit, there's a problem with the tree. And Jesus says you can't, you can't see your heart, you can't see anyone else's heart, I can't see your heart, but I can look at the fruit in your life, you can look at the fruit in your life, and say, well... Are there any tests of salvation that the Bible gives us? And yes, there is. Yes, there is. Let me just give you a few. According to Romans chapter, according to Romans chapter six, uh, one of the things you a a test for fruit that you're a healthy tree that you really have been converted is is there personal holiness in your life? Personal holiness. That's the idea where you're you're constantly being set apart from sin unto God. It doesn't mean you're perfect. All right? Uh, according to Galatians chapter 5, you got the, the, the fruit of the Spirit there. That is, that's Christ-like character being exhibited in your life, coming from the internal part of you. All right? So these are just a few things we see here. And then Colossians chapter 1 mentions good works. You were saved for good works. You are God's workmanship. Bible says. Number four, according to Romans 15, stewardship is, is a fruit of, of salvation in your life. Do you see yourself as a steward of God's stuff? Your body is God's. All your possession belong to God. You're a steward of it. It's not yours. Okay, if you... If you are a wise steward, God says, then that is a, a sign, if you will. It's a, it's a fruit of salvation. And then in Hebrews 13, verse 15, someone who is a true believer, a genuine Christian, is, is going to praise God. It's one of the things that concerns me when we, when we, whenever we come together and, and people aren't praising God. If there's no praise coming from your lips, I'm concerned for your soul. 
Because genuine Christians just overflow with what God is doing in their lives. They can't hold that back. They want to praise God and glorify Him. Well, these are just a few things that Scripture tells us that are fruit of a changed life. So again, which path are you on? Which way are you going currently? Which way are you going? The good news is, for those of us who've stepped off the way of the godly, there's always hope. Jesus is longing for you to return. Because he is just and faithful, he's willing to forgive of our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. My friend, for those of you who've never put your faith in Christ, God the Father loves you. That's why he gave his son for you. Will you believe in his son? Will you believe the work that he's already accomplished for you? And trust in him? So if you've never put your faith and trust in Christ alone, come, come talk to one of the believers here. Okay? And if they don't know how to show you from the Bible how you can become a Christian, then come and talk to me. Okay? I'll be more than happy to talk to anybody. And you can show you from God's words how you can know that when you die, you're not going to be in the lake of fire, but you'll be with Jesus.